going to ask you to take your Bible open to 1 Peter chapter 2. The first letter of Peter. It's near the end of your New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, you still hadn't gotten as far as you need to go yet. Go on from Hebrews and uh, continue your march. If you go to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you've gone too far. If you go from Hebrew to James, you hadn't gone far enough. Right after James, you'll find 1st Peter. 1st Peter chapter 2. It was May 21st, 1946 in Los Alamos, New Mexico, when a young and daring scientist named Louis Sloton, involved in the Manhattan Project, was trying an experiment that he had to try over and over again in order to determine the critical mass of uranium that was needed to cause a chain reaction. This was just after World War II, of course. This is during the time when we had experimented and actually used the atomic bomb. And uh, this was a time when science was very much pursuing that. What, uh, What this young man would do to determine the critical mass the amount of uranium needed to begin a chain reaction, this young man would push two hemispheres of uranium together. And just as they began to, uh, just as they began to become critical, he would push them apart with his screwdriver, thus ending the chain reaction. One of the scientists there with him called it tickling the dragon's tail. It was that dangerous. But that day, though he had done it many times, Just as the material became critical, the screwdriver he was using to pry them apart slipped. The hemispheres of uranium came too close together and instantly there was a bluish, dazzling haze that filled the room. And instead of ducking and perhaps saving himself, Lewis Slayton took his own hands and pulled the two uranium globes apart, thus ending the chain reaction. By that self-sacrificing act, he saved the lives of seven other people in the room. As Lewis waited for the car that was going to take him to the hospital, he said to a companion, you'll get along okay, you'll survive this, but I don't have a chance at all. This will kill me. It was only too true. Nine days later, he died in the hospital in agony. Twenty centuries ago, the Son of God walked directly into sin's most concentrated radiation, allowed himself to be touched by its curse and to take his life. But by that act, he broke the chain reaction of sin, not just for seven people, but rather for the whole world. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated the depth of his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this last message in our series, When Bad Things Happen to God's People, I'm going to share with you a simple message called The Supreme Suffering of Our Savior. The supreme suffering of our Savior. We've been talking about suffering for weeks on end now. We've been talking about the Christian response to suffering. We've been talking about the whys and wherefores of suffering. When it happens, why it happens. How should we respond when we do suffer? This morning we talk about Christ's suffering. And here's what I want you to see. The supreme suffering of Christ on the cross is a model for our sufferings. The supreme suffering of Christ on the cross is a model for our suffering. So let's begin, number one this morning, with the reality of Christ's suffering. The reality of Christ's suffering. Before Jesus was crucified, he was flogged by a Roman soldier. That flogging consisted of 39 lashes with a whip of braided leather thongs embedded with metal balls to bruise and pieces of bone and glass to rip the flesh of the shoulders and the back. 
Many of the condemned would actually die before they ever got to the cross. They would die from that flogging, from that beating. As a matter of fact, Jesus was in critical condition even before he went to the cross. Peter describes the cross this way. If you look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 21, Peter describes it like this. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he trusted himself, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The apostle John was an eyewitness to the crucifixion of Jesus. In John chapter 19, he records this, beginning with verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And then fast forward down that chapter, chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, to verse 28. It says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I've shared with you before what those words, It is finished, mean. Those are the last words Jesus spoke when he said, It is finished. And basically what the, the words are in Greek, they're the Greek word tetelestai, that whole phrase is one word, and it means... The debt has been paid in full. Jesus Christ was saying, the debt of sin I have paid in full. The reason I died was to pay the debt of sin in full. Crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians. But it was honed to a brutal science by the Romans. They used crucifixion as a way of keeping captive peoples at bay. In his book, The Case for Christ, award-winning journalist Lee Strobel interviewed Dr. Alexander Metherell, a man who is both a medical doctor as well as has a Ph.D. in engineering. Dr. Metherell described the process of crucifixion this way. He said, it is the nailing of five to seven-inch spikes through each wrist about an inch below the palms. Not in the palms because that would tear away. But about an inch below the palms. Thus locking the hand to the cross. The prophet Zechariah said in chapter 12, verse 10, predicting those nails, he said, they will look on him whom they pierced. The nail would crush the medial nerve, which is the largest nerve that goes into the hand. Now, to get the sense of how painful that would be, we know that every once in a while we hit our funny bone, don't we? And there's nothing funny about it, is there? You hit your funny bone, it's an intense, immediate, difficult pain. Well, that's the same pain that would have been experienced by Jesus when they drove that nail in through his wrist and it crushed the medial nerve. As a matter of fact, the Romans invented a new word for it. They said this pain was so bad that they had no other word in their language to describe it, so they invented a new word for it. It's our English word excruciating, and it means the pain that comes out of the cross. Jesus did that for me and for you. Dr. Methro goes on to describe how the crossbeam would have been hoisted up and affixed to the vertical embedded beam in the ground. The victim's arms would be stretched six inches out of place 
shoulders would have been dislocated out of their joints. And thus Psalm 22 accurately describes the Messiah's bones as being all out of joint, end quote. Often the feet would be tied to the vertical beam of the cross. At other times the feet would be nailed to the vertical beam of the cross. But either way it was done, it was done for a single purpose. So that's so the victim could push himself back up because death from crucifixion was not death from hemorrhage. It was not death by bleeding to death. It was rather death from asphyxiation. And the victim on the cross had to be able to pull himself up because he could inhale in a descended position, but he could not exhale unless he pulled himself up. He couldn't breathe out unless he pulled himself up. And of course, at some point in time, the victim on the cross is too weak, being there perhaps for days. Too weak now to pull himself up anymore, and he dies from suffocation. Jesus did this for you and me. After six hours on the cross, Jesus died. And in order to ensure his death, the Roman soldier took a spear and cast that spear into the heart of Jesus. The Apostle John describes that as blood and water flowing out of the wound. Dr. Methuel says that's an exact description of a wound, a spear wound that would have first pierced the pericardium, that sac that contains viscous fluid that lubricates the heart, and then into the heart itself with the resultant flow of a massive amount of blood. Jesus Christ did this for you and for me. There's the reality of Christ's suffering. But secondly, there's the reason for Christ's suffering. Why? Why did this happen? The reason for Christ's suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 and 24 through 25 says, He, Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. That means He was not guilty. He was guilty of no crime, yet He was sentenced to death. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Old Testament frequently speaks of us as human beings as sheep and of God as our shepherd. And it speaks of us as sheep because sheep are defenseless. They can't defend themselves. That's why they need the shepherd. And sheep, right, frankly, are stupid. They will wander away from the flock and get themselves lost. They'll eat a place of pasture till they eat it down to the ground and they can't forage there anymore. And the Bible says we're like sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've wandered away from God. But God laid on him the suffering of us all, the iniquity of us all. Notice those phrases that are in quotation marks in those verses in 1 Peter. Quotation marks mean that they're quotations from some other source. The other source, of course, is the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 6, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. Remember the nails that pierced his wrist? The nail that pierced his foot? He was crushed for our iniquities. Remember the medial nerve that was crushed by the nail going into his wrist. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I've told you before that I grew up in a church of another denomination. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I've said it so many times, it doesn't get the laugh that I'd like, but I couldn't spell it, but I was one. It still doesn't get the laugh I want. But I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and I never was able to put the gospel together. And for me, 
the fact that Jesus Christ died on that cross was a, the senseless suffering of our Savior. There's no sense to it. No rhyme, no reason at all there for me. It was a, another example of man's inhumanity to man. And my thought there was simply, why in the world that happened, I don't know. But then there came a night, August 29th, 1971. I know it's a long time ago. August 29th, 1971, when I went to a crusade. Now, you've got to understand, a fellow invited me to go to this crusade. I was Episcopalian. A crusade was a war. I didn't know what he was inviting me to. And I went because he was a nice guy. And I heard for the first time the gospel. The word gospel means good news. Now, the good news starts with bad news. And the bad news is this. We are all sinners and we cannot save ourselves. Do you agree with that? I hope you do, because that's what the Bible says. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All our righteousness is filthy rags. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. That's the bad news. The good news is that God has done something to save us that we could not do for ourselves. He sent His Son into our world, this righteous Son of God, who never sinned, in order to die to pay the penalty for our sin. That was the love of God for you and for me. God loved us so very much that He sent His Son into our world to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that we might come into right relationship with Him and live forever with Him in a place called heaven. For the first time in my life, I understood that there was a reason for Jesus' dying on that cross, and the reason was me, and the reason was you. He loved us, and because He loved us, He died for us, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. And what I came to understand that night is so terribly simple because the gospel is so simple. I am a sinner and Jesus died for sinners, so Jesus died for me. It's that simple. There's nothing complicated about it. It's just so simple that a four and five-year-old could understand it. I'm a sinner and Jesus died for sinners, therefore Jesus died for me and for you. During the Middle Ages, there was a popular story which circulated about Martin of Tours, the Roman soldier turned saint, for whom Martin Luther was named. It was said that Satan himself once appeared to St. Martin in disguise as Jesus himself, as the Savior himself. And the Bible says that's not particularly strange. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, we're told that Satan often masquerades as an angel of light. And that's what was happening that day. St. Martin was ready to fall at the feet and worship this resplendent being of power and light when suddenly he looked at his hands and he asked the question, where are the nail scars? You cannot be my Savior without nail scars. Dear friend, do you recognize that? The only Savior that you and I will ever have is the one with nail scarred hands. No politician will ever be our Savior. No hero will ever be our Savior except the hero of Jesus Christ where the nail-scarred hands tell us, I loved you this much that I went and died for you. St. Martin realized that it was just Satan because the nail-scars weren't there. The great Princeton theologian, back when Princeton had great theologians, B.B. Warfield, Pin the words, a Christless cross is no refuge for me. A crossless Christ my Savior could not be. But, O Christ crucified, I rest in Thee. Our Savior had to be crucified. It's the only way He could pay the penalty for our sins. 
and become our Savior. And dear friend, let me share with you something. If there was a reason for Christ's suffering, and that reason is that He died to pay the penalty for our sins, that He loved us so much He died for us, if that is the reason for His suffering, then don't you think, dear friend, there might be a reason for your suffering? Don't you think there might just be a possibility that there's a purpose in your suffering? You know, we lived in a godless world, an atheistic world, a universe without God. There would be no reason for our suffering. We would be nihilist. A nihilist is someone who doesn't believe there's any purpose in the universe. There's not a God. There's no reason. You're just floating along till you die. That's life. Try to invite somebody to a party like that. (laughs) They're not going to come. We're believers. We're theists. We believe there's a God who controls the universe. And because He controls the universe, because He is the sovereign God, our problems have a purpose. Our suffering makes sense. Maybe not at the moment. Maybe we can't understand it right now. But somewhere down the road, either here or hereafter, we will understand the purpose behind our suffering. And that's what Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, to those who have been called according to His purpose. So friend, take comfort. Your suffering like the suffering of Jesus is not senseless. God has a purpose, a beneficial reason for your suffering. You may not be able to understand it right now. You might not be able to, to see it yet. But dear friend, God has a purpose, a reason for your sufferings. And it will be much easier to endure them if you understand that God has a reason behind your suffering. So we looked at the reason for Christ's suffering. Let's close by looking at our response to Christ's suffering. Our response to Christ's suffering. First, our response in our sufferings. Our response in our sufferings. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19-21 through 21 says, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Now, Peter's primarily speaking to those who are servants or slaves and don't have a whole lot of say in what they do for a living and are often beaten by their masters. You see, in the world in which Peter lived, most people were slaves. The slaves outnumbered free people. They outnumbered them greatly. And Peter says, if in your position in life, you suffer, then understand that you have a Savior who suffered as well. And He left you an example of how you ought to endure that. Peter's telling us that we have the great example of Jesus, the greatest suffering of all. So, dear friend, the next time you suffer, you don't have to cuss. You don't have to kick the dog. You don't have to put your fist through the wall. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of those of you that have done those kinds of things, boy. So I'm afraid I might have to raise my hand too. But you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to do that anymore because there's a purpose behind your suffering. As frustrating as it might be, there's a purpose behind your suffering. So that's our response and our sufferings, but there's also our response to His salvation. Our response to His salvation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25 says, For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a wonderful verse about salvation. It pictures us as lost sheep being returned to the good shepherd. 
And the best known Bible verse of all, the one that everybody pretty much knows, no matter what background you come from, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Many years ago, the Archbishop of Paris preached in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. He told the story that a number of years before that, three young men, godless, rebellious, and profane, happened into that cathedral late one night. They had not come to worship. They'd come to do something else. Two of those young men bet the third that he would not go up to the crucifix behind the altar. They said, we bet that you won't walk up to the crucifix behind the altar And we we bet that you won't say, I know that you did all this for me, but I don't care at all. All this referring to Christ's death on the cross. Third young man took the bet. Slowly he walked down that long aisle toward the altar. Reluctantly he climbed up the steps leading to the altar. Then he stood before the altar with the crucifix right in front of him and above him. Then he looked up at the crucifix where he saw wounded love and bleeding mercy and he began to slowly form the words. I know that you did all this for me, but I, 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 and he couldn't say it. The Archbishop of Paris then said, I was that young man. And that night changed my life. And I'm here today as the Archbishop of Paris because Jesus Christ did all that for me. And it matters more than the whole world. Dear friend, how much does what Christ did matter to you? Does it matter to you more than the whole world? Or are you like I was as a 15-year-old young man? fairly ignorant of the gospel, believing that I would earn my own way to heaven because good people get to heaven on their own, you know. Believing that I would earn my own way to heaven and make it there myself until that night when I was confronted with the gospel and came to understand that I'm on a losing trip. I'll never make it there. And only Christ could do for me what I needed done. You see, dear friend, John 3.16 says, Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation does not come automatically to any of us. It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter whether your dad's a preacher, your mom's a preacher. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what you do with Jesus. The only thing that matters is whether you say yes or no to him. The only thing that matters is whether you receive him or you reject him. We all have that opportunity. You've got that opportunity now. I don't know how many times you've had it before, but you've got it right now. And the Bible says, behold, today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart and turn him away. Today is the day that you need to receive Jesus Christ. You see, dear friend, you can respond to what Jesus did for you on the cross by receiving him or by rejecting him. Both of those are responses. You can do one or the other. I pray that you'll receive him. I pray that you will not reject him. But it is your choice. God loved you enough not only to die for you, but to give you the choice of where you would spend eternity. To give you the choice of whether or not your sins would be forgiven. 
To give you the choice of whether or not you could live the new life that He's promised you. And that choice is up to you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. This is a wonderful crowd of people, Lord. We're so thankful for our upward basketball and cheerleading program that's brought them to this moment in their lives. They're here today because they they started in that ministry with us this year. And they're here today, Lord, because you want them here. And you wanted them to hear this message. And Lord, some of them may not know you. And if they don't know you, they need to know today. They can know you. You're the one who died for them. Your love was so great that you went to that cruel Roman cross and you died there for them. And you invite them to come and open their hearts to you today. And allow you to become their savior and their Lord. And to live every day from this day forward for you. To be forgiven of their sins. To have a home in heaven one day. And to receive the power necessary to live a brand new life. Lord, that's all up for stakes this morning. That's what you can do. And so I pray, dear Lord, that you would do just that. And that you would open our hearts through your Holy Spirit and speak to us in such a way that we will all say yes to Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.